Good morning. Glad you're with us. And I'm glad to be here. It's a wonderful day. Excited about the baptism we're going to share together in just a moment. I, I love the gospel text for the day. This is one of the wonderful things about the lectionary is that you get texts like this, at the end of which you have to look at your neighbor and say, weeping and gnashing of teeth? Praise to you, Lord Christ. And I will come to that text in a moment. As, as you all know by now, I'm, I'm a professor and a professional theologian. And so I get paid, more or less, to, to think about big problems, to think about large-scale issues. And as all of us know, we are living in the midst of a lot of large-scale issues. I mean, we're, we have been now for months living through a global pandemic, a, a, a pandemic that has touched literally the entire world and has touched our entire lives, right? So all of us, if we, if we had time this morning, we could talk about all the ways in which this global pandemic has affected us and our lives globally. I was joking last night. My wife and I were at a wedding. She's not here today because she, she partied too much, danced too much, and she's too sore today and hurting. I'm just kidding. Some of that's true. Some of it's not true. She isn't doing well, though, so, so pray for her. And hopefully she's watching this. Maybe, maybe. Hopefully she's turning it on right now. Honey, I hope you're doing well. I miss you terribly. So I was at a wedding last night, and we were talking about what, what it's been like during the pandemic. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm shy enough and introverted enough that the pandemic hasn't affected me in the sense that I wanted to go out. But it has affected me in the sense that my kids could not go out. And I love my children, and I think they love me at least most of the time. But there are moments in which I need what my youngest calls lonely time. Just need a little bit of space, right? So our, all of our lives have been touched by that in ways that are, are funny and in ways that are not funny. I mean, ways in which we've, we've known people, or perhaps we are, ourselves, have been terribly sick from it. Or, again, some people that we know who've passed away. I, I have close friends who've lost people they love very much and that, that I knew and loved. So it's, we're, we're affected on kind of a global scale. And then, of course, I don't know if you know this or not, but you can Google it if you want. We're in an election year. And there's some stuff going on politically. Again, I don't know if you follow politics or not, but there, there are a few things that are just kind of, I don't know, somewhat abnormal maybe, and that can affect us, right? So it would be easy, given the fact that I, you know, I tend to think about large-scale things, and given the moment we're in, it would be easy to, to speak about those kinds of things, to talk about issues related to those large-scale problems. And in fact, tonight, Bishop Ed and Father Paul and I and some others are going to have a conversation about Christian citizenship and what it means to be a Christian in a moment like this, a political moment like this. So we're not shying away from those difficulties, but I really feel like it's imperative for me this morning to kind of scale down to the shape of our lives, specifically the shape of our lives as a community, as sanctuarians. My journey with sanctuary began early in 2011, before my youngest was even born, before the churches had merged, before Sanctuary and Life Connection had merged. The first time I spoke at Sanctuary, Bishop Ed wasn't there, and his son David and Colton Barnaby, some of you may, know, may have known Colton, 
connected me. So I, I spoke that morning. This was before the merger. This is when Sanctuary was still meeting in the TV station and TV studio. And then in 2012, after the merger and after Paul and Lissa's wedding, I came on staff as teaching pastor. So I, I've been involved with Sanctuary for nine years, a little more than nine years. Uh, again, I don't know if you know this or not. Some of you may have been here much longer than that. Some of you perhaps not that long. But a lot has happened at Sanctuary since 2011. A lot has happened. A merger and different pastoral leaders and different locations. And of course now, as a community, on the, on the other side of all of that transition and all of that shifting, which has been dramatic and painful, I think wonderful in some ways and difficult in lots of ways. Now, like all churches, we're, we're feeling the pressure of the pandemic and the, the fact that the world is changing around us and the ways in which what is happening politically, what is happening on the large scale is working back into the shape of our lives. But here we are, God has brought us through and is bringing us through and what I want to do today is look at the texts that are given to us and think about what those texts have to say, not about the large-scale issues, not about politics or the pandemic, but about what it means to be the people of God here in this community, what it means for sanctuary to follow what the Spirit is saying and where the Spirit is leading. So let's turn to Philippians 4, which is the epistle reading for the day. And as I promised, I will come back to the gospel text. I won't just leave that hanging. Philippians 4. This is a letter written from prison. We're not exactly sure which prison. Probably Rome at the end of Paul's life, but maybe Ephesus a little earlier in his life. But we are a long ways removed, 20 to 30 years removed, from Paul's so-called conversion experience. So Paul has been through a lot by the time he's writing Philippians. And he's writing this letter from a prison to a community that has refreshed him. He, in fact, he names them for, and celebrates them for the ways in which they've cared for him in his troubles. And he names particular people, too, who've done that. Epaphroditus, who Paul says, you know, has refreshed me in my chains. Like, while I was imprisoned, while I was under persecution, Epaphroditus and the Philippians have cared for me and have supported my ministry. But the particular passage we're going to read today is Paul's way of addressing some kind of problem in that community. Now, this is two millennia ago, and we don't know exactly what the problem is, but there's some kind of issue that seems to be between two women in particular. And we don't, again, know what caused it. We don't know how the community is responding to it, but we do, we do see that Paul wants to address it. And what I want to do is think for a moment about what he says about that conflict and what that might say to us, sanctuary, about how to live in this moment after all that's happened, all that is happening. What does it mean for us to be the people of God in Tulsa, in this community? So Philippians 4, we'll just start in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Right? So he, 
he, he comes with these, these terms of endearment, these dear friends who are his joy and his crown, his beloved brothers and sisters. Stand firm in the Lord, he says. And then he names these two women between whom there seems to be some kind of conflict. I plead or I urge Euodia and I plead and I urge Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. So he names these two women. Again, we don't have any idea what the conflict is. But he names them both and urges them both publicly to agree with one another in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, and this is Paul's nickname for someone, we're not sure who it is. It might be Epaphroditus, it might be Timothy, it might be someone, the bishop or a bishop in Philippi. We don't know who it is, but Paul refers to his, his loyal companion, his faithful yoke fellow. Help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So if you look at the history of interpretation, if you look at the way the church has read this text, there are a few interpreters who say the fellow yoke fellow, the, the faithful yoke fellow, is perhaps the husband of one of these women. And other interpreters say, well, that can't be true, because if you're going to name two women and tell them that they need to be reconciled, don't ask one of their husbands to do that work. Amen. Marriage has not changed that much in 2,000 years, right? <laughs> family is family, wherever and whenever you are. So he says, to whoever this faithful yoke fellow is, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So he, Paul says, find a way to reconcile. Find a way to agree in the Lord. Be of the same mind. And then Paul says to the whole community, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So I, I think there, there is so much the Spirit is saying to us, to sanctuary, from this story of Paul trying to speak to a conflict, trying to speak to some disorderedness or some unsettledness in this community between Euodia and Sintiki, between these two women, whom he celebrates as having striven with him in the gospel, having stood in the battle with him, and the, the first thing, and I think the first word we need to attend to, is that he wants there to be reconciliation. He wants there to be peace. When I was in graduate school, one of the classes I had to take was conflict resolution. But there is a world of difference between learning to manage conflict and learning how to live at peace, how to accomplish actual reconciliation. One of the problems I think that dominates our culture and all of us suffer from 
is an aversion to pain. We are addicted to painlessness. In fact, I think the widespread abuse of pain medication is a symptom of a deeper soul problem. We don't know how to manage conflict. We don't know how to manage the pain that comes in conflict. But the work of the Spirit is not just to manage conflict. It isn't just to avoid pain. What the Spirit wants to do is make it possible for us to live without harming each other or being harmed. It's not pain that's the problem. It's harm that's a problem. There there is no way to have the truth without some pain. The truth hurts, we say. Or at least the truth shows us where we have been harmed. But we don't want to harm each other, and we don't want to be harmed. Oddly enough, the only way to actually live without harming each other is to not be afraid of hurt, not be afraid of pain, to trust that there can be good pain, necessary pain, necessary difficulty, necessary conflict and confrontation on the way to genuine peace. And so Paul here isn't just trying to avoid pain. I mean, he names the problem. He, he names it explicitly and says, we have to find a way for these two women and whatever the issue is at stake, for them to think the same way in the Lord. He doesn't tell them to get in line. He doesn't throw his weight around. He urges them, each of them, calls them each by name, and urges them to find a way together with help from Paul's friend to think the same way in the Lord. And so I, don't, don't hear me saying that I think there's some kind of conflict in our community. That's, that's not what I mean at all. I do mean, though, that at Sanctuary for a long time, We've faced difficulty, faced difficulty in lots of ways. Some of it was, since I've been here in 2011 to now, there's a lot that's changed about the way that we worship on Sunday. This church, the liturgy doesn't look the same as it did when I started here. And I'm not to get all the credit for that or all the blame, just while we're here, uh, footnote. It's, it's been a change. Right? And, and there have been, this pulpit has been filled by different people over that time. But I'm not just talking about the fact that we've had a lot of change. It's also when you have people who live together over years, you're going to have conflicts that aren't related to the church itself. It's just people are people. Right? And all of us, I, I think I come back to this again and again, all of us all the time are Saul to someone's David and David to someone's Saul. There are some people in your life right now that are praying for God to deliver them from you and deliver you from them. That's just the way life goes, right? We are difficult for some people to take. Other people are difficult for us to take. I mean, we went to that wedding last night. Back to old friends, back to old family, and there were people on the way there. My wife and I were talking about how we could strategically avoid encountering those people. And I don't feel a bit bad about that because I promise you there were other people on the way to the same wedding who were talking about how they could avoid us. And the thing is, that probably wasn't the same group. There were people we wanted to avoid that didn't necessarily want to avoid us. And there were people we wanted to see who wanted to avoid us. That's just what it is to be human. And that was true 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world, and it's true now, and it'll be true 2,000 years from now. It's just part of what it means to be people. 
But part of what it means to be the people of God, to live, as Father Paul said, as we began the service today, as people who are a blessing to others, is that we learn how to move past conflict and past conflict resolution toward the peace of God, toward the work that only the Spirit can do as we are open to the Spirit doing it. And that, that's what Paul is directing. That's where I think we have something to learn as a community. Notice he says, and, and I will, I'll do this quickly, the first thing he says to them, if you're going to be a community in which peace is possible, not just Conflict management, not conflict avoidance, but also not just conflict management. Actual peace. You have to know how to rejoice in the Lord. And this may seem cliched, it may seem old-fashioned, but the heart of it is we have to find our joy in God or we can't do the work of God. If I can't come back to the joy of the Lord is my strength, I won't have the strength to live in community. You won't be able to live with me, and I won't be able to live with you for very long if you don't find joy in the Lord and I don't find joy in the Lord. One of the reasons we come to the Lord's table every week is a reminder that he sustains us. He gives his life to us. He gives his joy to us. He gives his peace to us. And because his spirit is at work in us and we return to him over and over again and allow him to renew his spirit in us, we're able to live together. We're able to live peacefully with one another, thinking with the same mind, as Paul says. So we we have to rejoice in the Lord. And we have to rejoice in the Lord in prayer until our anxieties are relieved. Now, Paul is, is not naive about, about anxiety. Paul himself will say in his letter to the Corinthians that I despaired of life. It's striking that in 2 Corinthians, he tells them we are struck down but not destroyed. We are pressed, but we are not in despair. We are anxious. We are anxious but we do not give up hope. Earlier in the letter, he says, I despaired of life. So the same man who's saying, we don't despair, we don't abandon hope, we're not destroyed, says, well, I was. Because again, that's part of what life is, wherever and whenever you are. Even while you're professing that love casts out fear, you can be afraid. In fact, I've come to believe that it's precisely as you start to understand the promises of God and truly trust them, you become aware of the ways in which you've been lying to yourself about what your fears actually are, about what your struggles actually are, so that the closer we come to understanding what God wants for us, the more we understand we're not there yet, right? So that it's the Apostle Paul in this letter who can say, after all that I've been through, after all that I've accomplished, I count it all as nothing because I have not yet attained what I am called for. So I I think we we have to find a way to rejoice in the Lord. We have to find a way in prayer to let our anxieties come up. And this, again, this this may seem cliched, it may seem old-fashioned, but to be the people of God is to be people of prayer who in prayer unburden ourselves before the Lord. There is so much about this that I think is easily lost. Our hearts, we, we take on weights. We, we are wounded, marked by our interactions with people. And if we don't know how to take all of that and unburden ourselves before the Lord, 
it's going to come out elsewhere in other conversations. If I don't know how to come into the presence of God and say, God, Father Paul did this to me, and I need you to do something about it, then I'm eventually going to do in gossip what I wouldn't do in prayer. If I don't know how to come into the presence of God and say, this angers me, and with God, you can be even more direct. Say it however you need to say it. You don't need to tone it down. Say what you need to say. Because if you don't know how to speak your heart to God, then your heart will speak you to other people. It will come out of you. And part of what it means to be living in a Christian community toward peace is to be people whose lives are given to prayer. Real, raw, honest, broken before God prayer about what real people in your lives have done to you or failed to do for you. And knowing that they're praying about you too at the same time. And that all of that openness to God is the way, one of the ways in which God is going to bring about peace. But, but that's not really what I want to stress. What I want to stress in my last few minutes is, is that Paul says, you have to rejoice in the Lord. You have to give your anxieties to God. You, you can't live an anxious life. You have to pour yourself out before God. And if you do, the peace of God will guard your hearts. But what, what really interests me and what I want to focus on is he says, your gentleness must be known to everyone. That if we're going to be people of intercession, we have to do it gently, gently. And intercession is the heart of the gospel. I mean, that's what we see in the Exodus 32 story today, that God is done with Israel. Israel has sinned, the golden calf story. God is going to blot them out, or so it seems. And he says to Moses, I'm going to destroy all of them and start over with you. And Moses, understanding the heart of God, says, no, that's not who you are. That's not who you've called us to be. Moses, as the psalm says, he steps into the breach and saves Israel from their own destruction. This is the heart of the gospel. This is exactly what Jesus does. He steps into the breach and he saves us from our own destruction, from what sin and evil and injustice and death are doing to us. He intercedes for us. Moses intercedes for us. And in order to have peace in a community, we have to be intercessors, but we have to know how to intercede gently, gently, carefully, with meekness and humility. We have to know how to intercede without throwing our weight around without pressing anyone unjustly or unduly. Psalm 23 has this, I think, beautiful image of the ways in which God brings reconciliation about gently. You notice at the end of the psalm, we say, the, the psalmist says, you prepare a table for me. How does it go? You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Now, why would God do that? Why would God make a table for you in the presence of your enemies? Well, I, I think there's a lot happening here. One is, he means for you to remember that your enemies aren't the ones who serve you and feed you. He does. He's the one who prepares the table for you. Whether they prepare a table for you or not is beside the point. He prepares a table for you. And one of the reasons he does it in the presence of your enemies is to remind you that they're not your source. It's also to remind them that he is your source. 
When God prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies, he's not only reminding you of what they can't do to you, he's also reminding them of what he is doing for you. It's a sign to you, trust me, don't worry about them. It's a sign to them, hey, I'm with them, they're with me, don't forget that. But it isn't just that. It isn't just a signal to you about them and a signal to them about you. It's also a sign of what he wants to bring about because what he wants long-term is not just for you to eat a meal while your enemies watch. He wants you and your enemies to sit down at the same table and be reconciled. In fact, the long-term goal is not just for you to eat in the presence of your enemies, but for you to get up from the table and serve them while they eat at the table that's been prepared for you. That's what Jesus does. That's what the gospel today is about. The man who has no wedding garment, who gets thrown out, is not a story about how if you don't live right, God's going to throw you into outer darkness. I mean, that may be true, but that's not what the parable is about. I'm not kidding. I am kidding. That's not true. He's not going to throw you out. And we don't have time to work through all of this. But the, the point of that parable is not that God sees that you're not dressed right and expels you. In fact, when, I, when the churches I grew up in, when they read that text, they talked about how you shouldn't wear short sleeves to church or God will get you, right? And women, you better wear dresses to church or God will throw you into outer darkness. That's not what the parable is about, right? It's not about the way you dress and it's not about your moral perfection. The point of the parable is that God is the one who gives you what you're lacking And he's the one who gets thrown out. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, what do they do? They strip him of his robe and kill him. Jesus is the guest who gets thrown out. And because he's the one who gets thrown out, he's the one who knows how to identify with us in that place. So intercession is absolutely at the heart of the Gospel. It is the Gospel. But everything depends on how we seek reconciliation. Can we do it with gentleness? Or do we throw our weight around? Do we pressure people? Do we impose? Or do we know how to be playful and lighthearted? Do we know how to have a good sense of humor about the fact that it's hard sometimes to get along? Notice in, in the, and I'm, I'm ending with this, notice in the story of the Exodus, the God that Israel once made for them. They, they come to Aaron, Moses is gone, Aaron make us a God, and what does he make them? He makes them a bull. Why a bull? Because they wanted a God that was forceful, a God that was powerful and virile and intimidating and violent, a God who would trample their enemies for them, a God who would gore their enemies to death, a God who could bring forth children, could sire their future. And when we let the sin in us dominate, that's what we want God to be for us. We want God to be a bull and trample down our enemies and gore everyone who's offended us. And it's perfectly fine in prayer for you to voice all that. But know that God is not a bull. He's a lamb. God is gentle. And there's a lot of nonsense in this idea of the Holy Spirit is gentleman. But the truth in it, the grain of truth in it, is that God, his ways 
are not violent. They don't violate us. They create freedom for us. God is gentle. St. Francis de Sales is a Catholic saint, Catholic bishop, who asks to go to Geneva during the Protestant Revolution and the Reformation and the wars between Catholics and Protestants. He asked to be sent to Geneva, the center of the Calvinist tradition that's emerging. And he asked to go because he says the gospel has to be lived in the heart of conflict. And if you read St. Francis de Sales' work, what he comes back to over and over and over again is the only way to live in conflict with other Christians is to come back together to the heart of God in the gentleness of Jesus Christ. That if you don't come back to gentleness, you cannot live the life of peace that God has for us. You cannot fulfill the calling. And he says, first, you have to know how to be gentle with your enemies. Then you have to know how to be gentle with yourself. And he gives this image. He says, if you learn to be gentle with your enemies and then gentle with yourself, then you will become a gentle person. Practice gentleness until it's your nature. And then he says, and when it's your nature, you will be immune to the poison of others. And he goes to the story of Paul in Acts where Paul is bitten by the viper and shakes it off in the fire and it doesn't swell. And St. Francis says, this is how you know whether or not you've practiced gentleness long enough. When someone bites you, when someone says something spiteful, when someone says something hateful, do you swell up or do you shake it off? What they did was venomous. But if you have the gentleness of God in you, it doesn't poison you. Was their bite poisonous? Yes, it doesn't poison you because there is gentleness in you to fight it off. So, this week, I just, this is truly how it happened. I just happened to be writing about this book, which is called The Power of Gentleness. And on the cover is a woman who is carrying a bull. And it was just this morning. I hadn't even connected the dots. It was just this morning. My wife was telling me the story about how this book was laying out. And our family came over. And we've got a bunch of young kids. And my brother-in-law's oldest son saw this picture of this nude woman carrying a bull. And says to my youngest, Emery, Ooh, why does your dad have that book? He's just grossed out, right, by the picture. And Emery, my youngest, says, because it's about Jesus, are you ashamed of Jesus? <laughs> this is about Jesus. Jesus is not the bull. He's the lamb. But here's the secret. When you integrate lamb-likeness into yourself, you carry the bull. And St. Francis, perhaps his most famous line, is that there is nothing as strong as gentleness. There is nothing as strong as gentleness. So sanctuary, we are, in just a moment, as soon as I shut up, we are going to baptize Brennan, a kid who was born since I've been here. The future is open. The future is bright for sanctuary, for you and for me, for this community. What God has been doing here and is doing here, he will continue to do. All that's required of us is to rediscover what it means to joy in the Lord, to let our anxieties go in the presence of God in prayer, 
and to learn gentleness. And if we do that, then what's happening with Brennan is going to happen with not only other children, but people we don't even know yet. People who God is bringing for this community. People who are a part of this community but but have been wounded in this community. God will bring healing to them. God will restore us. We just have to learn gentleness. Let me say a quick prayer and then Father Paul's going to come. God, thank you for sanctuary. Thank you for the vision that you put in the heart of Bishop Ed and Father Brent and Reverend Janice. Thank you for the ways in which you've worked with the elders and the leaders in this community for such a long time now. God, I'm grateful to be a part of that, a part of that team. God, we believe that you have called Sanctuary together for it to be a community in this city right now. And that all we've lived through is part of what you are doing in us as we yield to you, as we follow you, as we take up your way. God, I pray that I and that these people that I love, we will practice gentleness. Gentleness with others, gentleness with ourselves, and we will learn to be people who carry the bull rather than being bullish. We, will, we learn not to lust for power, not to lust to have our way, but as Bishop Ed always reminds us, the wisdom from above is first of all gentle, willing to yield and not to have its way. God, instill that wisdom in us so that the future you have for sanctuary can be as bright and as rich and as delightful as you intend it to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.